Well, today, uh, if you remember last time we were together, we were finishing our tough walk through the book of Lamentations, um, through the poetry of Lamentations, a, a book that is deep and rich with sorrow. But as we said, nonetheless, worthy of our contemplation, uh, especially as we head into, uh, into Holy Week. Um, and, and again, the, the, this terrible, uh, these terrible events that took place in, in Nashville as we head into this week, uh, just more cause for lamenting, you know, where, where we're at in our culture, where we're at in the world, um, and just grieving for our, our brothers and sisters in Christ. But, but these dark things lay even, even, you know, again, here's where, here's where we have to be careful when we read Lamentations. And I've made this point that it can become fiction, you know, it can be, the Bible stories can become fiction to us. They, they, they become Bible tales, you know. Um, and so when we hear about the, the suffering of Judah, you know, that we're lamenting, it's, it's like a Bible story, it's a Bible tale. But it's not a tale for those in Nashville, you know. Um, and of course, not just Nashville, but in hospitals all over the country. And, and you know, I mean, uh, people are suffering all over the world. Uh, the, the, the dark backdrop of suffering, of death, of sin, whether it's in Judah or whether it's in Nashville, sets the context for Holy Week. It, it doesn't take away the pain that the people are, are dealing with down there, the, the, the six families that lost their children and spouses and whatever, uh, the three adults and the three children. Um, it, it doesn't, it's, it's, not a, it's not a pain reliever. But it's a solid rock on which to stand. You know, it's a it's a firm foundation. Um, it's a it's a it's a buoy in the midst of overwhelming waves that are crashing on top of them. Um, but but these but what we're what we're about to think about, and we think about it all year long, as as our beloved Evars would remind me, uh, whenever I bring up the church calendar. Bill, every Sunday is Easter Sunday. I know, Evars, I know. Um, so, <laughs> but 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 uh, this particular week, we we really hone in. We hone in on what is the climax of the world. It's the the climax of world history is what we celebrate this week, and and it is literally the only thing, the only thing that can speak comfort to those in Nashville. Or to those in Judah. So that's what we're coming into. And I don't, I'm not using the tragedy in Nashville as a cheap opening to a sermon. I mean it from the bottom of my heart. I've been meditating on it all week, obviously on so many levels because the Christianity, the PCA, but school uh, is the first time we've seen something like this in a school like mine. Um, you know, and, and it just hasn't, it hasn't been something that schools like Covenant have had to deal with. And uh, it's so it's just so many uh, existential levels. So today is Palm Sunday. Today is the day in which we remember our Lord riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. And Mark read the text for us, so I will not read it again. But I want, in looking back now at that story, I want us to reflect on five elements, they're all going to be adverbs, um, on the way that Jesus enters, uh, th that become little portals for us to contemplate what's happening here as we make our way now to Holy Week, 
so you you know the story. Jesus is outside of Jerusalem. He's making his way to work. Told he he has set his face like a flint to Jerusalem. He's he's on mission now. He's been on mission, of course, his whole three years of ministry and his whole life. But but it, it has it has it is focused now. Uh, it's it's time. Uh, I've been thinking through this with my freshmen as we're reading through the Gospel of John together in, in my New Testament class. And one of the things that we've been noticing and really been honing in on is Jesus' use throughout John of the language, my hour, my hour, you know. And it starts when when they're at the wedding at Cana and Mary comes to him and says, uh, hey, they're out of wine. <laughs> and uh, and Jesus, Jesus turns to her and he says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Um, my hour. And then and then throughout John, my hour, my hour, my hour. And then you get to John 12 and he says, now my hour has come. Now is the time for the Son of Man to be glorified. And what shall I say, Father, deliver me from this hour? No, it is for this hour that I have come. So, so the hour has come. So yeah, his whole life has been mission, but now it's the hour uh, that he enters Jerusalem. And so the first adverb I have, uh, the first point is that Jesus enters Jerusalem intentionally, intentionally. You know, Athanasius in his great work on the incarnation written in the beginning of the fourth century is making an argument about why Jesus, uh, why God had to become man and then, and then why things went the way they went um, with Jesus. And he asks an interesting question in, in that book. He asks, could Jesus have died in his sleep, like in his bed? Could that have happened, you know, for for our sins, you know? Or could he have died in an ox cart accident, you know? Um, it's just an interesting question to contemplate. Well, why did it have to be the way it was? Did it have to be the way it was? And he makes the point, no, it could not have happened that way because it needed to be intentional. It needed to be, it's not that Jesus, it, it, it couldn't be suicide but it needed to be missional. It needed to be Jesus coming and you, and you get that defiance, uh, that, that defiant intentionality when he's speaking with Pontius Pilate and Pontius Pilate says, don't you know who I am? I have the power to let you go ahead. And Jesus said, no, 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 you have no power. <laughs> Actually, you have no power. Right? Any power you have is power that's been given to you. No one takes my life. I lay it down freely. You know, and it's like, whoa. Right? There's this intentionality. Yes, the Romans and the Jews are going to conspire together and they are going to, his creatures are going to execute it. But it is missional and intentional by Jesus. And we know this. But it's worth remembering that point here that Jesus has come to Jerusalem. It's, it's not just, oh, it just so happened he was in Jerusalem. And while he was there, they arrested him. No, Jesus, knowing his hour had come, sets his face to Jerusalem like a flint. Now it's time. In fact, we know that other times Jesus got out of there because he was afraid they might try to uh, crown him. They might try to make him king. And it was not his hour. And Jesus headed for the hills. You know, he went somewhere else. But here, the hour has come. Jesus knows what he's doing. And he approaches Jerusalem, even down to the details of the donkey. Somebody go get me a donkey. Go in there. There's going to be a donkey, you know. And if they say to you, why are you taking it? You tell them the Lord has need of it. 
Now, either at that point some miraculous thing happens or he worked it out with a guy last time he was in Jerusalem. Look, when I send a guy and, you, you know, he says to you, the Lord has need of you, you know it's me. And he's like, take the donkey. You know, I don't know what happened. But the Lord, the Lord here, Jesus is intentional about this right to the very littlest details. And he's entering knowing exactly what he's doing. Shall I be delivered from this hour, he says? No, it is for this hour I have come. And this is an hour, by the way, that is going to cause him to sweat drops of blood. This is an hour in which he is going to say, by hour here, of course, I'm, I'm expanding to this, the larger context of that hour. But it's an hour in which Jesus is going to be crushed to a place where he's actually asking his father, Father, if there be any way to deliver me from this, you know, if, if there's any way to take this cup from me, do it. But if not, then, then your will, not my will be done. So, so this is not an easy hour. This is not just, you know, the machine just cranking it out here. This is Jesus making an intentional decision to head to Jerusalem to do what has to be done for the sake of the world, for your sake and for mine. In John 17, he prays. This is when he's being crushed in the wine press of God's judgment, so much so that literally... The, the grape juice is coming forth from the grape. I mean, he is being pressed and blood is coming forth from his pores in the Garden of Gethsemane. And while he is being crushed in the wine press of God's wrath, he prays and he prays for himself. Father, glorify me now. He prays for his disciples. Father, keep them, make them one. And then he prays for you. I pray not only for these, but for all those who will know me through them i.e. you, Father, be with them. Make them one as you and I are one. Jesus loves his church. He knows his sheep. He's the good shepherd who intentionally lays his life down for his sheep. So the first thought in his coming is that it is intentional. The second thing is that it is humble. He comes humbly. And of course, we know this. This is what we think of when we think of this story. This is called the triumphal entry, and yet he comes lowly, as Zechariah says. He comes lowly, riding on a donkey, the foal of a donkey. You know, the you know the he he comes in a lowly way. He comes in a way that blows up the archetypes of leadership and authority and rule and kingship. He just doesn't look like a king. People get whiffs of his kingship throughout his ministry. You know, you, you're the son of David, you know, even even when uh, he asks his disciples, Peter gets it for a moment. You know, you're the you're the Christ, the son of the living God. You know, you're you're the king. But most don't get it. You know, who do men say that I am? Well, they say you're a prophet. Yeah, that's because he looks like a prophet and he is a prophet. But he's, he's traveling around. He doesn't have any pomp or any glory. In fact, he kind of shuns that stuff. And when people even start to hint that they may want to make him king, he bolts out of there. But he's a king. He's the king of kings. And when Peter acknowledges it, he says, well done, Peter. Flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you. Obviously, you haven't gotten this from your eyes. The Lord has revealed this to you. It's a mystery, if you will, hidden to the world. Now, it's going to be revealed to the world, but even when it's revealed to the world in its initial form, it still doesn't look very impressive. Remember, it gets revealed as our Lord is nailed to the cross, and Pontius Pilate, in the providence of God, 
makes a decision even against the, 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 the desire of the Jews who are pressuring him, he puts above the head of Jesus, Jesus, king of the Jews. And he writes it in three languages. <laughs> he, he writes it in Greek and Aramaic and Hebrew. Oh no, the Greek, what is it? Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. Greek, Latin, and Aramaic? I can't remember the three. But he writes it in three. It, it's, the, the world will know this. And what Pontius Pilate's motives are, because they, they remember the Jews come and say, hey, hey, take that down. Say, okay, if you're going to keep it up there, say, he said he was. <laughs> and Pontius Pilate says, what I have written, I have written. This is the way it'll be. And he's revealed to the world as king. Even down to the crown and the, the purple robes that are placed on him and so forth. But again, even there, it doesn't look kingly. But that's because we have idolatrous eyes. We, we, we view kingship like, like we have since the fall which is a grasp for power rather than a, a, a self-giving, as we'll talk about on Monday Thursday as the King of Kings gets down on his knees and washes the feet of his disciples. So here he comes riding in with this, you know, with this traveling band of disciples, you know, come, coming in, and here he comes riding in on a donkey, the foal of a donkey. And so he comes intentionally, but he comes humbly. He comes lowly. He comes in weakness, for he comes as the servant of God, who is, as we read in Isaiah, the suffering servant for the sake of his people. Now, make no mistake about it. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords, who will come in absolute glory. When he comes again, he will not be humbly and lowly riding on a donkey. The heavens will be rent open, he will come with a sword out of his mouth, riding on a white horse, we're told, and, and, and bringing judgment and striking, you know, dashing the nations to pieces with a rod of iron. But here he comes bringing salvation to the world. And he comes bearing the weight of their sin, whether it's on a donkey or with a cross over his shoulders on his way up to Golgotha. He comes intentionally. And in this story, he comes humbly. But thirdly, he comes triumphantly. He comes triumphantly. Right? He knows what he's doing. He knows that he is fulfilling what was said in Zechariah 9. And Zechariah 9 did not say, now listen, there's going to be a, a lowly character who comes wandering into your town. And, you know, no, it says, behold your king. Behold your king. And he's going to rule from sea to sea. I mean, read it. You know, read, go back and read Zechariah 9 and 10 again. It's glorious. His dominion will be an everlasting dominion. It will be from here to there. It will be, and Jesus knows it's this that he's fulfilling. So yes, he is coming in humbly, but make no mistake about it. He's coming in triumphantly. This is called the triumphal entry. This is what a king does when he's riding back from battle. And though he is walking into battle, he's already coming in in an act of triumph and victory. And the crowds, and we don't know how many were there, but whatever crowds are there, know it. And they're taking off their cloaks and laying them down, and they're getting palm branches and probably pussy willow branches, and they're putting them all down. And they're praising God in the highest for this king, who will indeed come 
and dash the nations to pieces with a rod of iron and against whom, you know, they ought not mock and deride as they do. You know, some too, why do the nations rage? Why do they plot in vain against the Lord and against his anointed? And they do, and we're seeing it. Even as he marches into Jerusalem, the nations are plotting against him, conspiring together. I mean, Caiaphas and, and, and Pilate are going to conspire together to get this thing done. They're going to plot together in vain against the Lord and against his anointed. But nonetheless, God has established his king upon his holy hill, and Jesus knows it. And so he comes in intentionally and humbly, but also triumphantly ready to reign. And then fourthly, he comes defiantly. He comes defiantly. And it's here that I've, it's this that I landed on for the title of my sermon, The Impossibility of Silence. Because as he comes in, the crowds are singing. And they're cheering, even little children. Singing Hosanna in the highest, you know, the, the son of David. You know, they're, they're, they're praising him as the king. And the leaders come around and they say, hey, 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 whoa, 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 whoa. Tell them to knock it off. Tell them to stop doing this. And Jesus says, well, it doesn't matter. If I tell them to stop, the rocks themselves will cry out and they will sing. You can't stop what is happening here in your presence. Ah, the defiance of Jesus. As they come and tell him, hey, keep it down. Make these people stop saying that. And Jesus says, I will not. Again, here gets to the intentionality. He knows what this will mean and he will take it. But it is time now for the veil to come down. It is now time for the mystery to go away. It's, you'll remember many times in Jesus' ministry, he would do things and then he would tell people, hey, hey, hey don't tell anybody that. <laughs> he heals the leper and he says, don't tell anybody I did it. There was this, there was, this was kept in mystery. And I believe for this very reason, lest we move things along too quickly. But now it's time. And let the world sing about it. Let them say it. And let the consequences be what they will. And so here Jesus says, I will not keep them quiet. If they will not sing, even the rocks will cry out. And as I said, this is why we chose Acts 4 for our, our word of exhortation today, because this is exactly what Peter and John are doing. They can't be silent anymore. Peter, who was so scared before, who was silent there at the trial, when the, when the little girl, little girl, said to him, aren't you one of his disciples? And he was like, be quiet. You don't know what you're talking about. He refused to speak. And even before Pentecost, we don't know what they're doing, but they're up in the upper room kind of cowering together. But after Pentecost, it's impossible to be silent. And Peter goes out and he ran in the streets. And you heard it in the Acts 4 text too. The Lord whom you crucified. He's going right at these people. You know? And so may it be so of us. And I have to confess, I have to confess that I think the reason I honed in on that title was because of this Nashville thing. Just thinking through the realities in a culture that are becoming increasingly hostile to the faith and what it's going to mean for Christians who very much want to shave off sharp edges off of our message and not say things 
that call sin what it is and call people unto genuine and real repentance or who proclaim the distinctive of our faith and proclaim Christ himself as Lord with all the beauty and the sweetness that he brings. Don't forget what Jesus was doing here was coming for the salvation of the world, something beautifully and beautiful and sweet, and yet it was unbelievably offensive. Right? It, it, it was so offensive that they did what they did to him. Like you just, you stand back as a Christian, like, I just don't get it. Why the outrage? I mean, what has Jesus done that would inspire you to do that to him? But Jesus was clear in John 15. They do this to me. They will do it to you. You are not greater than your master. If they persecute me, they will persecute you. If they hate me, they will hate you as well. And it will be just, I think, as inexplicable. You know, when you when you watch a culture turn, and, and I, I, I wrote an email to our Chapel Field families just some reflections on all this and you know as you, as you watch this I I don't it's 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 not a majority of our culture I think that is if you will uh building um hostile feelings toward the faith it's it's a minority but it's a but it's a strong vocal powerful minority it's a minority that uh that has its hands on a lot of levers of power within the cultural institutions of our of our but as we see that, it's it's like it's it's disconcerting and unsettling. You're like, wait, what what's happening here? What what happened? I mean, and yet it is the narrative of the world. If we if we let Jesus give us the narrative of the world, this is the kind of thing you ought to expect. We're just not used to it. We're not used to it. And what we have to be careful of is that in the pursuit of some kind of cultural stability or, hey, we'll all get along. We, we don't speak and we don't proclaim the news of Jesus Christ. And the point is, hey, I, I, think of, I think of the church in Ephesus. You know, Jesus said to them in the book of Revelation, if you are not faithful, I will take your lampstand away from you. You know, it's like I, I, I don't have a problem making lampstands. And I've made one and I've planted it here in Ephesus. And if you refuse to be bright, if you refuse to speak, that's okay. I'll take the lampstand away. You know where I'll move it? I'll move it over here. And he moves it over to Europe. This is my brother. My brother will go on about this, you know, Steve. You know, that he looks and he says, you see this wave of like, okay, the, the, the lampstands were taken out of Turkey and the Middle East and in a large part. Not that there's none there. Praise God there are some there. And it's like God planted them in Europe. And now Europe, okay, hey. And then Europe decides to abandon the faith, you know, in the in the uh, 19th century. And lampstands move. And it's like we need to remember this same thing here in America. It's like we are called. God can have rocks cry out, as I said earlier. He, he'd like his church to do it. He'd like his church to be singing Hosanna to the highest in the streets. But if they won't, he'll have the rocks do it. You know, if we won't do it here, who grew up in a in a tradition of it, that's that's fine. He'll be glad to have some other country do it as well. And he will. He'll spread it all over the world. But it's a, but it's a call to us to remember not to be silent and to make sure that we too are joining in the cheers 
and the songs, whatever the consequences might be. And so he comes defiantly. And may we be defiant of the powers that be, for they are already defeated in Christ. And we stand in a position of victory. We stand in the position of the first fruits of the end of the age because of the resurrection of Jesus. We have even more reason to sing, even more reason to proclaim than they did at this moment where the cross and the resurrection hadn't happened yet. So I just, it's a charge to me personally, but also to you to be bold and not to keep silent for the sake of the gospel. Now, for the sake of America is important. I, I'm, I'm all for America doing great things. I'm, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about for the sake of the gospel. I'm talking about for the sake of the kingdom. Proclaiming the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ as King of Kings before whom everyone must bow. Before whom America must bow and North Korea must bow and Nigeria must bow and Germany must bow. Everybody must bow before that. And that's what we proclaim. That's who, that's who came riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, the king of all kings. The one who said in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and earth is given to me. Now go out and say stuff. Go out and sing. Go out and teach everything I've taught you. Go out and baptize and disciple all the nations because I am the king. And so go tell them that the king is upon his throne. And that's what we are to do. That's what we are to be emboldened to do and defiantly do it. Because guess what? The powers that be want you to shut up. And I don't just mean the powers that be in America. I mean the powers that be in this present evil age, as Paul They want you to shut up. As they tell Jesus, make them stop. And we have said, we can't. As, as Peter and John said, look, you, you, you answer this rhetorical question yourself. Who shall I obey, you or God? I know you just, you help me with that one. I can't stop. And so may we not stop. And then finally, he comes intentionally, humbly, triumphantly, defiantly. And then finally, compassionately. Jesus is defiant here. Jesus is triumphant. Jesus is sticking it right in the eyeballs of the power that would be. You know, it's like, no, we're not stopping. And then he gets in and he weeps. He gets in and he looks at his beloved people, his beloved city, and he weeps for them. Right? Again, this gets to this amazing balance that there is in Christ of unbelievable, unbridled power and authority and a crucifixion. That, that Jesus is, is going to reign over all the earth, but the way he's going to do it is by allowing his creatures to crucify him. Jesus comes in triumphantly, and yet tears are right there. And as he comes through the cheering and the defiance, and now is into Holy Week, if you will, he weeps. Because he looks at Jerusalem, and he sees her defiance. He sees her rebellion. He sees her cold-heartedness. He sees her recalcitrance. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You just won't come. How I would have gathered you to myself like a, a hen would, her chicks under her wing. How I would have sheltered you there. Think Psalm 91 where no evil can befall you. That's what, I, that's what I'm doing. You just don't know the day of your visitation. Oh, Jerusalem, how awful it's going to be for you. 
enemies are going to come and they're going to build embankments against you and they're going to not leave one stone standing on another. Now there he's literally talking to Jerusalem because that's what's about to happen in 70 AD. But of course, that is a picture. The destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD because of her recalcitrance. It's just, it's, it's a, it is a shadowy little cartoon picture, if you will, not to minimize it in history. But in comparison to the judgment that is coming, not just upon Jerusalem, but upon the world. You don't have any idea what is coming, Jerusalem. But the day is coming when the judgment of the Lord will come upon you. So what are we to do with it? Well, we're to do with Jesus. Come unto me, all you who labor. I will give you rest. I will shelter you under my wing like a hen does her chicks. But if not, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And he weeps. And so our Lord does come triumphantly and defiantly, but also compassionately. And hence, again, why he goes to the cross. This is the good shepherd laying his life down for his rebellious, recalcitrant sheep that he might save them, convert them, turn them into, into sheep like, like, the, like those in, in, uh, in the book of Revelation who follow the lamb wherever he goes. You know, it's just like, we're with you. We'll go where you go. And may that be true of us as we go into Holy Week this week and I do encourage you to make use of the church calendar. Let this be a time in which you spend time contemplating on Monday, Thursday. We will. We'll think about the Last Supper and we'll think about the foot washing. We'll think about Jesus in the upper room with his disciples. They still don't have a clue what he's doing. Peter takes two swords with them, you know, and, and Jesus just <laughs> Jesus shakes his head, you know. And when Peter uses it and cuts off Malchus's ear, Jesus grabs the ear and puts it back on. And then, you know, he's like, Peter, you just... You don't get it. Of course, they didn't understand. They didn't know what's going on. And to the darkness of Good Friday and of the, the crucifixion of our Lord, may we take time to contemplate these things. And in so doing, know the story of which we are part. And may we rejoice in the humility of our God and the triumph of our God. And may we be given mouths filled with songs to sing and words to say to proclaim the glory of the King of Kings. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for these events that we commemorate on these days. Indeed, every Sunday is Easter Sunday. Evars is right about that. And yet, Lord, we commemorate these times so that we can remember, so that we can reflect, so that we can recalibrate ourselves from the ways in which our minds and souls have wandered over the year and remind ourselves who it is we follow who it is uh, we sing of when we sing, who has charged us to go forth and to proclaim and to disciple the nation. So we thank you for Jesus Christ, that humble, yet defiant, triumphant, compassionate, and missional King of kings and Lord of lords. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. <laughs>